Comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Brothers Book Club podcast, a book review podcast with two brothers. Ryan's on the other end of the line. I'm Travis. I really like that uh, that intro segue. I think it will be the most thematically coherent part of this entire show. Should we um, just refer to the populace as comrades? I'm I'm in. I'm in for I, it. I would assume most of our audience is more pro than bourgeoisie, 100%. but I guess we'll, you know, we haven't done much market research for this bad boy. So, you know, you never know who's tuning in, really. I don't know. Oh, man. I guess, I guess we're about to find out. Proletariats? I'm, I'm imagining, but, you know, we've got some, got some pretty well-to-do friends. I thought it was bourgeois. Well, bourgeois is, I think the... The singular or the adjective form also. Mm. Bourgeoisie is the noun, like the group. The bourgeoisie. So that's who we're going to be talking about. A lot of bourgeoisie talk here. We will be, because if you haven't been able to pick it up by now, this is our 20th episode, and today we are reviewing the Communist Manifesto. Yep, this is it. This is what it's it's all come to this. Just to immediately, lest we get labeled a political podcast prematurely, we are just doing these Penguin Classics in order, and so this is the 20th one. It just so happens to be an even number and a monumental work of world writing and mm-hmm. literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, been a lot of poetry up to this point, so uh, if you're just now tuning in, I would suggest uh, celebrating the back catalog because it hasn't been all politics up to this point, but... That's that's where we're at for number 20. Other than Jonathan Swift, this might be the most expressly political and maybe most directly connected to world events, probably uh, by a pretty large margin. Yes, 100%. I think when we started out, you know, kind of trying to get ideas for this podcast, we were trying to, you know, ask ourselves how these classics would be relevant in 2019. And I think... We've we've stumbled upon the number one, I think, somehow most relevant, so far at least. That's uh, Well, we're jumping right into the reviews then, man. Let's get into it. Th- that was your takeaway, you think, of that the first had, 20? <laughs> that was that off- this is This is the most connected? <laughs> <clears throat> I, no, that was, that was more reactionary. Uh, my review uh, is, it, I guess it kind of aligns with that, though. It, obviously, you know, when you look at the 80 volumes and you kind of you know skim ahead and see what you're going to be reading uh this one jumped out at me uh, for sure because it was one of those that i had heard of before had no experience in reading any Karl marx or friedrich engels um but you know in popular culture or whatever what have you had heard of this before and um i don't know it gripped me in kind of a a different way um but there was so much of it mm-hmm. that i thought still applies to you know whoever you are whatever you're thinking if you're a working person which i think you know most people are it's you will have like some opinion on this and you will be applying this like to your own life that's at least that's you know i, I was doing that more more so in this book than any of the other 19 that we've read so far yeah, I think, I mean, God, 
I, we really should have done this yesterday. If you guys want a behind the scenes peek at the podcast production here, <laughs> I was much drunker yesterday when we were threatening to record this. <laughs> and I think I think I'm just gonna have to pause so many times during this recording now that I'm sobered up. And I just this. I mean, it's like any communist or Marxist rant. It's best when it's just done in a fever pitch. You know, letting it fly. You know, spewing everywhere. Yeah, beer in the hand, leader of beer in the hand. Right. Um. I see. I don't even remember what the segue was, man. I, oh, I think yeah, they're doing this what, podcast hammered. hammered yeah. Drunk. Well, no, I, I remember what you said. Now, what is undeniably true since this um, pamphlet was written and published is that global. Uh, capitalism, especially globalism and the international movement, has only way deepened. I mean, oh, in 100%. ways that, and so you're not wrong. If you're a working person in a global economy, then this book has huge bearing on your life, or could, in a big way, connect to your life and the way it's lived, etc. So, yeah, I would definitely agree with you on that point. I guess my review is that I found it so strange to revisit something that was so important to my life, which is, hmm. and it's weird because this particular book, I think I encountered maybe in college for the first time, uh, maybe even in high school though, at some point, but yeah. it, it wasn't particularly this text that meant any really thing to me. It was more just Marxist theory and some stuff um, that was like offshoots of Marxism in college. Yeah. So it's more of just the core, some of the ideals and ideas. This, this text it's like you are living a dream, but with total clarity. And so it's mm -hmm. weird. Some of it's so disconcerting and disconnected. And then some of it's so lucid. And you're just like, whoa, that's, yeah, that's really clear. And then some of it's dense and it's often all of that at once. And so I found the process of reading it just really weird. I guess well, the closest comparison would be like you, I time traveled and met a former version of myself. And he was a, a lot like what I remembered, and then not at all like I remembered. And so it felt odd. Okay, well, I guess I, I totally agree with you about like the lucidity of it. And like there are certain sentences in these paragraphs that you're like, holy shit, yes. And then you read the rest of the paragraph, and you're like, wait, what were we? Okay, I'm going to go back. But that makes me curious. What was your first, like you said you are reading Marx in college, or high school even, like what was your first take of this? Like what was, what was your first take when you first read it? So yeah, and that's the thing. I don't even remember reading this, the communist manifesto for the first time. Yeah. I remember the first uh, political class that I had uh, would have been in college that it was a political theory class where we read a lot of Marxist offshoots and then some Marx and some Hegel. Hegel's the German philosopher that he kind of derives from, that he mm -hmm. was inspired by. Yeah, um, I remember that quite clearly because I thought, well, this is uh, much different than things I had ever learned. And then, yeah, I, from there, you know, classes get taken and things get deepened. Um, but yeah. I, I can't remember, honestly, I can't, and the funny thing about Marx, ultimately for me, um, this is, we're way out of review territory now, but I'm cool with it. <laughs> yeah. Right it's been 20 episodes, you know, we think, had 20 yeah. good contained ones. This one might be pretty sprawling. Who knows? I liked, I liked what you said when you said we threatened to record it yesterday because, uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's, I think that's kind of the goal of this 20th episode is to, yeah, just, uh, 
just expand on things a little bit more. I think we've earned that. Well, when you have a person like Marx who is who essentially transformed some aspects of political theory and economic theories, and then also literature and literary theory. Uh, it, it's just, I almost feel like I experienced him secondhand from all of his predecessors, um, not predecessors, but successors, right. and a lot of literary theorists since then, and various political people and figureheads yeah. and like cultural more con- more critics. contemporary, yeah, okay. Sure, yeah, and so it's just, it's odd to go back to the original document. Like, I don't think I'll ever crack open Capital again. That's like his monumental one mega work about capitalism, but mm-hmm. maybe I will. I don't know. I have like a portable reader still (laughs) sure like how long do you think that uh not long but what do you think that audiobook would read like because you know everyone's got to commute just pop that on in the car yeah yeah in between in between trips you know See, even now, I mean, the world keeps turning, right? Marx would agree to that. And even now, if someone came to me and they were like, hey, I heard you were Marxist. And I was like, yeah, all right, let's, we can talk, you know, <laughs> give, give me the secret handshake or whatever. <laughs> show me, show me your half of the tattoo and we'll connect them together on our forearms. Like, yeah, right. yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, but they're like, well, you know, I'm just curious. Like, even now, some of the economics have gotten profoundly updated for yeah. new, new realities, new working conditions. For sure. There was a French uh, economist, I think two or three years ago, who wrote a like 1,500-page tome, basically reassessing a lot of the views and a lot of the economics. And so there's just updated versions of all of this. That's, oh, and like how it applies to the manifesto? Well, uh, how it applies to Marx's ideas. That's cool. the thing. Let's okay. let's get into some quotes because w- the thing about this book, and so I will I will happily take the like I've studied this in college douchebag high ground. It is just <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take the low ground. Well, it's yeah, it's just stunning how many things in this book should be clearly elaborated upon, and then the it just doesn't. Because it's not supposed to, because it's a manifesto. It's like a brief. It's supposed to be yeah. a brief motivational, you know, sort of a motive. Yeah, a motivational, yeah. inspirational piece. It's like and, the elevator pitch, but yeah. like in pamphlet form. It's like here's our, here's our thing, man. Here's here's all of it. Yes, this is the deal. And so yeah. there are too many moments in this when I thought, gosh, he really didn't have a, a like he didn't elucidate on this in any way. This like critical concept that I used to really or still find compelling, and it's just like he just doesn't. He just doesn't. He, that just goes by the wayside. So yeah, mm-hmm. I had that reaction a lot of while reading this. All right, man. Well, let's get into let's get into the first quote you pulled. I'm so curious as to what that one was because I yeah I pulled a couple. Yeah, I think I'm going to start with the by far the prediction that still should make the world tremble, um, though you know conditions have changed. Uh, on page twenty, which is the, what the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all is its own grave diggers, and I think that in any revolution that you study. Uh, this this truism kind of holds that if you want to find a place primed for revolution, you will find people that have been primed by yeah. conditions or people or the market or the yeah. government or the state or whatever. Yeah, the worst so, people. Yeah, and so I mean, in the 21st century, how how is this relevant? You know, let's not. We're not going to dig up like climate science now. Sure, but I, no. I can't help but think that if. If that is not a certain type of grave that 
a capitalist drive could put us toward, then I don't, that seems, it seems perfect. It's like a perfectly calibrated thing and that a certain economy and a certain system could drive towards. Sure. Yeah. Both, both short term enough to actually get to the grave and long term enough to make people not see the grave. It's like the perfectly middle ground calibration. So mm. it's a prediction that is still pretty eerie, though again, it's not like, you know, it's not like I picture the grave diggers these days as like Russian dudes in factories making steel, you know, it's a different mm. a slightly it's a different, different image. It's a different working class. Like you could try, I mean, this might this might fall too far off, but I mean, think about I think about, you know, laborers in industry 200 years ago, laborers in various industries now and who we're talking about, or I guess who Marx and Engels were talking about was like the true working class, like basically like minimum wage equivalent, like workers and say, you know, say you're working at some tech firm, you're coding, you're doing, that could mean anything. Now there's so many different, like you said, like the global economy, everyone, you know, an entry level job, you could be doing so many different things compared to back then. And like, Basically, you getting worked hard enough that you ultimately want to, yeah, like rise up and revolutionize. Yeah. And I just, I wonder in the context of 21st century issues, what the production of, I mean, I guess it says it's producing its own grave diggers. And in my brain, I've just sort of like ignored the the diggers part. Like the people are there planning for it and to be like, yeah, we'll take over once you're dead. I was, I guess it's just p- producing its own grave is kind of what I imagine is that it, yeah. it's definitely going to bury itself. Um, you, in reality, if your entire system is calibrated around ever increasing consumption, well, you live in a finite planet, which is just a shame for that system. And so mm-hmm. basic sense and math tell us that it will end. I mean, how and when and through what, you know, steps, that can always be debated. But mm. if you have a finite place and your system is only built on just growth for infinity, uh, that is that is problematic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never thought about it that way. Um, they do talk about, I think, towards the end where they start kind of talking about like other societies and they talk about um, agrarian. That was like a term I had to look up, but it's basically, you know, like agriculture driven, which I sure, mean, if yeah. you look at like, like the finite, you know, us living on earth, it's like, well, maybe that should be a priority, you know, like maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not the worst thing to be, but that was a kind of a side note. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he, the, man, the, one thing that comes up a lot in here that as every time I read it, I thought, man, this is so much more complicated yes. uh, than, than he, he presents it is the idea of, uh, what, what basically what feudalism is or well was and what it promoted and the economic relations within feudalism. It's sort of like in the book, in this manifesto, it, it's a, there's a lot of shorthand around it and there's a lot of history. He summarizes well, but then skips some things. So, yeah. you know, you'd have to know going in, like, maybe Wikipedia, I don't know, <laughs> some feudalism <laughs> stuff. Yeah. <laughs> never again. I don't know. Yeah. That's, well, I, I feel like as someone who has never read, uh, I don't believe I've read any Marx, or, um, which is a shame, or Engels, for that matter. But uh, I was, yeah, I really had to, like, you know, 
do a little bit of the old Wikipedia research, just jumping into it, like, man, what what is that? Like, what does that term mean? Like, who are these people? Because I think, like you said, so much has changed. But at the same time, like, there's one quote that I pulled from page 13 that was like, I think everyone can still relate to, and this would make anyone want to, like, eventually do something is um says no sooner is the exploitation of the laborer by the manufacturer so far at an end that he receives his wages in cash than he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie the landlord the shopkeeper the pawnbroker etc like man that that shit still applies there's like that meme that you see all the time it's like the payday but then like the day after payday where it's like you have to pay all your bills and shit like that uh-huh yeah yeah it's like man the money comes and goes and it's like yeah that's that's <laughs> that's been the case i thought that was something that it's like man who can't relate to that even in 2019 still right yeah and i think yeah the, the pawn broker is such a, a fascinating one to drag well, into that that's example been, that's been that's been a little dated no, but. i know it'd be too literal but i still find it yeah to be fascinating it's i mean it's the classic idea of what do you own in really yeah. you know like yeah. what, what do you really own how much control do you truly have and can you truly exercise and how do right. you discern between or how do you feel out you know what you have the power over or what you don't i mean we live in a time when people, I mean, my age, your age, like are renting in higher numbers than ever, renting all manner of things, mostly places to live. Um, yeah. Or and that, like, ah, you could you could apply that to anything, like TV yeah. or entertainment. You rent that, like music, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, I don't know. I think that kind of applies. Yeah, ownership of things. Now, granted, again, his, his ideas were more industrial, but right. I think that the trickle down in terms of how this applies is, is relevant. There's just a lot of, it's just questions worth asking. And I don't know if technology is, has made this kind of expedited this, made this go more quickly, kind of exacerbates right. it. You know, it seems like that's what the trend is, is to not own things, but just borrow them. Yeah. Uh, and it, a, a development that would have rightly horrified him. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he's the, the <laughs> talk about, I mean, issues around private property, like that's not even private property anymore. It's just private rental. And so perhaps there even was, a worse version of that. Yeah, there was uh there was the one and we're yeah, talking about private property that I think I got to page like twenty three where I was like, you know, I'm still in the beginning, I'm still kind of skimming through and like, you know, taking everything like, Oh yeah, that's a that's a like a fantastic way to think about that, or yeah, it's spot on or whatever. But there's the um there's a sentence on twenty three that is like um in this sense, the theory of communism may be summed up, summed up in this single sentence, abolition of private property. That's right, like, uh, right. that, that was one of the, so that was like, and then in the pages that follow, I do like how they kind of like present their argument and then they just like argue against it for like a few pages in like a couple different aspects. And then like, that's it. Like there's no elaboration right. on that really, but it's like, Man, you think private property is so cool and you think that gives you freedom. Well, here's why we're telling you that it doesn't. 
Yeah, that leads into one of my favorite quotes. It is, that's another thing that as I look at this, and it, they even acknowledge it in the pamphlet, which I guess, you know, that's a well-organized, well-drafted pamphlet then, because they do say, look, we know that your number one thing you're going to say to us is, holy shit, you're going to get rid of my property? Like, I can't yeah. have I can't have this shirt anymore. I love this shirt. You're just going to, that's Bob's shirt now. You, Bob can just come say, I want the shirt for today. I'm taking it. Like, yeah, of course I have to address this. It's like one yeah. of the key but there's such a, the quote I pulled is on 26 yeah. um, it's about freedom. And it's one of those really prescient, like the thing that at the core of the philosophy that always needs to be debated or at least understood and defined on people that want to talk about, the, mm. you know, Marxism, communism. Yeah. Uh, they say freedom is meant under the present bourgeois conditions of production as free trade, free selling and free buying from the moment when individual property can no longer be transformed into bourgeois property into capital. From that moment, you say individuality vanishes. Essentially, the claim being, yeah, your freedom just means you can freely buy and sell things um, as if we cannot imagine a different type of freedom, any any other type. Right. Freedom for anything else. Yeah. And of course, to, he says, capital. You'll, you'll hide this true freedom. Like, that's truly what they want when, you know, they, being capitalists or whatever, right. um, want freedom. They That's what they want. Though they'll argue, like, well, you know, it's really that we want free speech or we want freedom of expression or, you know, they say freedom of other things. Yeah. But it's the one, if the one that is threatened is freedom of exchange, that's the one that where you'll see true action on their part or, you know, freedom of speech is always, always room for debate. You know, it's, Totally. Comes and goes yeah. and you see that, but as soon yeah. as you think like, or as soon as you see like, no, it's property. We're we, yeah, we buying and selling. The, yeah, we think this is the notion of freedom we no longer want. Like, oh, then then you'll know. Ah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's so. I again, like, so relevant. You know, it's like you hear all the time, like, oh, you you know, follow the money. It's like it's like yeah, until until you're no longer able to like acquire capital for yourself. Which, uh, you know, is kind of like the base of their argument, too, where it's like, wow, does that really, you know, do you think that's freedom? Like, is that freedom to you? Are you asking me personally or are you posing <laughs> it as just a rhetorical question? <laughs> totally, totally rhetorical. But if you if you want to get into like, you know, how how cap or how communist leaning are we, I guess, is that I don't know if that's the purpose of this episode. I, I don't think it is. I mean, I don't want it to be. I've never thought of this podcast as like, let you and me just pontificate and like, you know, see what we espouse and all that. Though I don't, right. I don't mind sharing views or anything. I just, I always like to be grounded in the text. I can't answer your question though with a quote from a, there's a North author uh, who, I think she passed away this year. Ursula Le Guin is her name. She wrote a lot mm -hmm. of good science fiction. She's one of my favorites. I discovered her around the same point in my life when I discovered this. And she was, I think, pretty openly was probably a Marxist or something like that. Who knows if she ever said, but she wrote a novel called The Dispossessed, which is it basically like there's these two planets that orbit each other. One is very clearly just meant to be communist and one is very clearly just capitalist. It's like they're stand-ins. It's, you know, metaphorical. But yeah. there's a character who gives a speech in that book. And I still remember some of the words from it, but essentially he ends it by saying, like, you have the most beautiful prison ever made, but you're still trapped in your prison and you'll die, like, buried with the things that you have. You're, you'll die, like I will die, but you right. will be covered. Basically, you will die covered in things and I will die alone, like, in a room of nothing. Hmm. But but I, my life will have been worth far more than yours is basically the point of it. It's yeah. really well written. Um, yeah. And it, I think, can sum up... 
you know, in a crude way, I guess, in a fiction kind of way, um, sort yeah. of the, the feeling that I get, which is I often feel trapped in by the things I own. And it's one of my least favorite things about myself. And I feel kind of like um, we have a family member who I've talked to this about before who's he's complained like he feels like his a lot of his concerns are money related. And I, I don't know if mine are exactly money or budgetary, but it's like it's feeling trapped by stuff. I can't mm-hmm. move because I have too much stuff. I can't I have to take care of this car. I don't like, like it's just yeah. always thinking about the stuff you have. Like, how can I take care of my stuff or organize it or manage it or whatever? And yeah. it, is, it is like a mental prison when your concerns are just all filtered through. How am I managing the things I have? How, how do I manage the stuff I own? Yeah. yeah, I think it's pretty taxing. I mean, that you know, to think that way. Oh, 100%. My only advice would be get rid of the car as soon as you can. Just get just... That's becoming popular. Yeah, just get rid of that car. Just start there. But, you know, I know... I, yeah, exactly. I know how you feel. And I feel like, well, you got to send me that quote because I would like to read it. Um but yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the thing. It's that which is kind of the what I enjoy about some of the parts in this pamphlet. I guess you've been calling it a pamphlet. So, like, the, was this just originally printed and just handed out? I think it was originally circulated that way. Just, like, as far as I know, style? yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably it's probably red. Yeah, nice. Um, do you want? Do you know if any of those like transcripts or like pamphlets still exist to this day? Like, can you buy one on hmm. eBay? I, well, the eBay part, I don't know. I'd be stunned if a museum didn't have their hands on a few like first runs. You I mean, would this think is, that that would be like museum quality. This is like a foundation piece of uh, piece of literature. Yeah, it's sh- you know shaped Western civilization for like a hundred years or more, or you <laughs> yeah. know, still to yeah. be seen. TBD. Yeah, TBD. Hopefully, this yeah. podcast, you know, just it kind of brings it back to the forefront of the conversation. It's still relevant. Yeah, I mean they have they have some folios of Shakespeare's that are like four hundred years old. So I'm I'm sure they've held on to some pamphlets somewhere. There's there's a museum with one of these for sure. Oh man, we gotta we gotta see how much one of those goes for. Probably pretty penny. Yeah. Oh yeah. Almost definitely. Um, what other quotes do you have before we rock on to the other segments? Oh man, uh, let me see. Uh, there was one kind of in summation that I liked right at the end on 51 that uh, after, you know, we could touch on, there's so many other parts of this this volume that you could like really try and dissect. But yeah, um, the one that I, I kind of, you know, put a nice stamp on things is on 51 and it says, in short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against social and political order of things. And I uh, I thought that was just like a, just a pretty solid, pretty solid way to end it. Um, mm-hmm. And you would have to really like, a, you know, we're not here to spoil this for you. There's a lot, there's a ton in here to kind of dive into and really pour over and kind of, you know, enlighten yourself with. But I thought that was a really solid, yeah, just solid line right at the end. As far as summations go too, I only had one quote left and it's also a summation type of line. And it just says, whatever form historical antagonisms have taken, one fact is common to all past ages, which is the exploitation of one part of society by the other, which is just his comfortable way of blanketing a lot of history and saying, look, this is our explanation for antagonisms, how revolutions occur and between what groups and what's the motivation between them. Um, And I think, yeah, I mean, that's a good quote just to leave people before you, you know, transition to other ideas, but just to leave you with, if you have questions 
that you don't think you have answers to, to that question, then sure. I mean, this pamphlet, I don't think has them, but there's tons of historians who have tried to answer it in the way that Marx would have, you know, yeah, and yeah. Think, thinking in the way he has and tracking the history thoroughly or trying to, trying to be thorough. And so this ends up becoming one way to answer those that question. I guess that's kind of the fun in this follow-up too, is like, I would love to know from your point of view or even from others, like who are some of the most like, contemporary authors or, you know, big ideas people that who have tried to like cover some of this. And like you were talking about the, um, the one dude earlier, I forgot his name, but I would, yeah, I would just love to know like some of the more recent authors who have tried to like, you know, tackle some of the bigger ideas in this, uh, in this book. Sure. Um, yeah, let's take a break, and I will be able to tell you in about 30 seconds when I go to the bookshelf that is in my family room. <laughs> Not off the cuff, but, you know, maybe uh, personally. That's what might be like a personal, uh, yeah, just send me an email. I would, I'm curious to know, and I feel like if, if you do decide to read this, I feel like you will also, I don't know, it's like, uh, I, my, yeah, you'll, you'll be intrigued. You'll be curious to know, you know like how that has continued. Well, there are, let's actually skip the author to author and come back to it, but let's actually rate this and review it right away. Cause I do, my review is essentially what you just said with like, I guess more of a warning tone uh, to it. I, this book is such a weird one, three split one, meaning don't read it three, meaning you must read it. I mean, it, for something that for a set of ideas that have shaped my life, I find it hard not to say a three and just be like, look, you have to grapple with these. You know, if you're an investment banker, I don't care. You still should read and reckon with this. And if you want to reconcile your morality with it, that's fine. I mean, people have done that for hundreds of years now with very little, I'm sure they've lost no sleep, you know, yeah. you can go read Ayn Rand and that's, and you'll feel great and that's fine, yeah. but you should at least try and reckon with it and try and reconcile it as best you can. Um, it's worth that. And then the one aspect just comes from every author I remember really connecting with and presenting the ideas with real clarity and, and urgency. I mean, this book has some urgency to it, but just out of the context of that kind of industrialism just doesn't quite feel the same anymore. Um, right. And yeah, there's, there's cultural and literary critics. I wrote down on my review, Terry Eagleton is probably the author I think of most often, mm -hmm. mostly because he's written pretty diversely about different Marxist takes and perspectives on things, literature. Okay. And, and he has books that are, have nothing to do with Marxism. Uh, like one of his literary critic books on literary critical theory is like one of my favorites. And he also, he did write a literally updated book called Why Marx Was Right, which I think to me, that is my three recommendation. The actual Communist Manifesto, I'll leave as an intriguing two for ah. anyone who wants an original kind of source document. Um, the title of Why Marx Was Right can be as off-putting as you want. Again, if you're the Wall Street banker listening to this, like you can hate the title and you know burn the book after you read it, but you should at least grapple with its ideas and see what you come away with. Um, Cause it yeah. is, it's updated for more relevant economic issues of the day. Like I remember there's a crucial chapter in there about how the proletariat of the 20th and 21st centuries is ba basically became all women. When you look at like yeah. unpaid work around the world in like sure. most countries and uh, like, it, it's just not the vision that he had in his lifetime. And it has been, 
you know, in some ways crucially updated. So yeah, I mean, that, to me, it's kind of what I come away with. Like I've read literature in this in this philosophical space that is a three. This book I don't think is anymore. Like it has oh, a great man. ending too. It's kind of urgent in some spots. It, for the parts that it becomes dense on, it, it, there's not enough payoff, not enough explanation, uh, and they just, yeah, it's such a whiplash of a read for me. Yeah, it's a weird one-three split. I yeah, I I agree with yeah everything you just said, which I think, in fairness, has to just be a one-three split has to be a two. Yeah, no, I no? think it, yeah, I'm going with the two. Yeah, two's it, fine. Yeah, it's gotta be it's gotta be a two. I mean. I also, you know, this this episode, this volume, looking back again at what I've rated a three, which, you know, we've got some great ones in here, the scope, mm-hmm. passing this off to people and saying, man, you know, you have to read this. Like what you just said, I do agree that I would want every person that I know to have to grapple with most of the ideas in the in the book. Like I think everyone should, I think you, you know, you know, have some self-realization or some, you know, awakening or really try to re like take a serious look at what you value and what you consider to be, you know, important in your life. But uh, yeah, there were, there were some parts that just read super kind of like drudgy and there, there were, there were pieces that I was looking at were reading and it was like, Oh man, yeah, that's, that's a, that's amazing. I agree. Um, super poignant, super relevant in 2019, and then other parts where it's like, eh, I don't know. It's, it's like the perfect two, just a and, solid two. And you know what, Marx and Engels wouldn't have had it any other way. Just what yeah. they wanted to be, just a solid <laughs> two. You know, take them, leave them, come or go. But yeah. they're there, they're there on the, on their own stump. You know, stumping it, stumping it, just a solid two. Yeah, yeah, that's in some ways quite beautiful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is perfect. Well, let's let's bounce back to a favorite section, author to author, and because um, I it, this is an intriguing one. This is where we take last week's reading and find connections between this week and last week. Last week was Olala, which was a Gothic Victorian novel, a novella rather. Um, what did you make of the connections here? I'm actually glad you said that because my author to author on this one is um, very elementary, but also kind of fun. Uh, just because I feel like it's a wild mashup with uh, Marx and Engels, and then you know talking about talking about vampires and Olala, and you know kind of kind of what uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was on, and I don't know, like. There's two different tones, I guess, for me. And um, the, I guess where I took it was like, how would how would vampires, mm-hmm. like how would Marx or Engels view vampires kind of like as a, um, like players in like pro- the proletariat or bourgeois, bourgeoisie, bourgeois society and like how the um, like Marxist, uh, vampire mashup would go like a vampire hunter communist crossover B movie. Oh lord, I don't know. Yeah, that, you just tacked on like three extra adjectives at the end. You both yeah. hunter and B movie, which changes a, completely. Well, think of, I just think about like you know, like the the soldier in Olala, like mm-hmm. it, just turn that into like a B list Netflix like greenlit concept right now, but then like apply some sort of like Marxist. 
see, I can't, mangled. I cannot fathom a version, even of vampires through their lens that wouldn't end up. It has to have a segment where they they lord p- literal power over tons of people. Like, you ever seen Metropolis? The I think it's a Fritz Lang movie from like the 30s. I don't know. Probably not. There's just a lot of scenes in that movie that are pretty iconic. They show like large people working machines. There's like a really downtrodden working class, like proletariat okay. class in that movie. Yeah. But I yeah. just can't imagine any version. Th- uh, being solitary on a mountain and, and falling away to decay like in Olala, that's just not the that's not the bourgeoisie he would imagine. Though, not, the, they're not, they're, yeah, they're not bothered by they're, they're not even thinking about those types of people. The highfalutin idleness I think fits perfectly, but the the total lack of like power and influence, the just like being alone and, you know, decaying, that would not that's not active enough. There's not enough sway. <laughs> True. Yeah. Those people, you know, they're talking about engaged members of like a society or a, like a capitalist society. Yeah. These people, you know, these people aren't, these vampires aren't doing anything. No. And I think, well, in his way, in Stevenson's way, that is the criticism. It's that you guys have incested your way into de- just a uh, decrepit yeah, nothing, life. Yeah. Nothingness. You've wasted away your genes. He was more of like a, you know, let's a genetics bear it out kind of type. But yes. they, they're all, both authors are, I mean, Marx, obviously the whole, his whole life was dedicated to it, but they're critical of the, the aristocratic old money, you know, I'm, I'm hoarding the resources kind of types. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I do remember, I forget, I'm not going to pull the page, but inherent uh, inherent wealth, like absolutely not. Like that that was something mm-hmm. that was just like very, uh, very not very opposite of what the, you know, the communist propaganda was leaning towards. And it's like, man, that house, all that, that huge estate, all that property, give me that. I think too, the, the, Novella had the advantage of f- how fiction is allowed to end, with it, which is with such a... I remember the ending of that still. We didn't really talk about it in the pod, but I, I love the last couple pages of Olala, the the conclusion of it. There, He descends down the mountain, then he has one final look at the woman in the forest or whatever. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think it that just... Is a good one. The sound and fury ending of the pamphlet of the manifesto is just... It, it, almost today it reads a little corny in a way. I You yeah. know, it, it's still as effective in its in its forthrightness and urgency, I suppose. But there's just some advantage to not being as explicit that fiction can still have. It will always hold that serve where it just... It has the power of subtlety if you want it to. The power of representation and symbols mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah. And so... I found the endings like weirdly di- different though, totally different genres. So what are you going to do? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what are you going to do except just compare them endlessly? Uh, that's our job. That's, that's, that's what, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here to do. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I agree The two, two totally we're talking about two totally different writings, but I don't know. Nonetheless, yeah, there's uh now that you brought it up, the um the ending in both I think will stick with me when we're talking about I guess we can kind of dwell on this a little bit, like great endings mm-hmm. and like notable endings for a lot of these volumes. Like oh, sure. those both those both kind of stick out. I guess that is what they that what they do have in common is just like a pretty memorable uh like a finale or just uh just like an ending to him. I don't I know. Thought, I thought Olalos was just quite fitting. Uh, and it was it was one of the better moments because in a in a kind of genre or time period when so much gets lost in the description, yeah. how much of it is excessive. I mean, the ending has a bit of that, a touch of that, but just also kind of a subtler uh, symbolic 
component that I like. So, uh, me too. And now that's kind of just what I want to talk about because now I have questions about mm-hmm. the Olala ending. So, I mean, are we going to... We're running we back to episode 19. <laughs> <laughs> are, we, are we just going to spoil it? Uh, no. I, I actually think we should wrap, unless you have final thoughts on the manifesto. No. No. I think the manifesto has wrapped itself at this point. It sure has, brother, in the way that Marx would have predicted. He, this is <laughs> an, The ending of this podcast, too, was an inevitability foreseen in the waves of history. Mm, yes ever since the first podcast was this ending inevitable that's right there's been ebbs and flows and podcast revolutions and technical miscues and all manner of occurrences and this is how we've read them (laughs) into this into this conclusion this this winding uh, perhaps never to arrive finale yeah let this be let this be the the remembrance the only podcast on record to have uh mm. to have gone here yeah it's uh i don't know what else is there to say just a preview of our highlights episode so next week we will likely not post a new one actually i'm pretty confident we won't because uh, i do want to give the highlights its own kind of week so we can mm. put it out there and i don't yeah. know hopefully people can share but i'm compiling clips from the first 20 episodes including the one you just listened to so if you made it through that you'll hear part of that again um, but yeah we're compiling highlights of the first 20 in addition to some maybe retrospective elements and maybe we'll put in some general thoughts or questions Uh, i put some posts out there about this but if you have questions we would love to include them in the one through 20 highlights episode that we can you know questions we can respond to or talk about they can be about the books we've reviewed or older book club things we did or just i don't know really any question that's at least relatively on topic is fine with me um you know we'll answer them all yeah, I mean, I'll pretty much field any question, I want to say, with hesitation, but hopefully about some kind of literary thing. guess it doesn't have to be, though. Um, mm. so yeah, it's onthestump1 at gmail.com. That's the number one. So onthestump1 at gmail.com. Send us your questions or just send them on Instagram or wherever. And yeah, that'll be posted hopefully next week. That I think that will come together pretty quickly. And so, yeah, get ready, get ready to put that one out there to all your friends and coworkers and email all your buddies and get ready to tell them about it. Because I think it'll be a nice introduction to the reviews we've been doing. I'm actually, I think out of everything that we've recorded, I guess the, the, best, the best hits, the hits uh, episode is what I'm looking forward to the most. Yeah, I, I think it'll like be cool. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. How, That's right. How long is it clocking in at right now? Uh, well, to give you the the under the hood uh, total like complete picture, the version that I had compiled and then crashed and did not save, which took like four right. hours to edit, was clocking in pretty long. Like it might be three hours. It, I don't think it'll end up being that long, but it'll be over two. I'm pretty confident in that. It's just glorious. And again, just giving people an under the hood kind of behind the scenes look. Yeah, that, that was fun. Uh, this, this glorious enterprise. Yep. What a day that was to see that, to see it not save, to see the audacity file crash and then just stare at it for, I probably stared at it for a couple of minutes and didn't really move or say anything or breathe. Really? <laughs> just watch it just dissipate. Yeah. Right so there will be a finalized version that is not corrupted and delivered straight to your podcast portal of choice. Um, anything else for this week, Ryan, are you going to take us out? Uh, nope. Are you going to free us from our chains? Free us from the chains, from the bondage of podcasting. 
Yeah, uh, rise up, uh, unite, as they say. And uh, in that time, we'll see you between the classics.